You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. What a good morning it's already been to worship the Lord, to hear of His work amongst our body, and to sing songs to Him, and to hear from His Word already. So it's good. I'm glad we can... What a privilege it is for us to be together uh, this morning. I want to have you turn. You remember where we are? We're in Romans. We're going to Romans again. We're, you want to turn to chapter 8. I'll start in verse 1 again, but uh, if you look up Romans 8, on the way there, I want to show a picture from Tatum. Tatum, your picture's up here. I rarely get pictures. I was so excited. Tatum gave me a picture, and it says, The Lord reigns, and this is people singing. Did I remember that right? Yeah, this is... People singing, and last week we were talking about the mission of the church, and I brought up, regret, maybe regrettably, the illustration of Vince Lombardi and the Packers, and gentlemen, this is a football, and later on, if you listen to that game last Sunday night, they could use that, maybe, that this is a football, maybe they need to go back to that, but uh, anyway, I appreciate Tatum's picture of the joy of us exalting the Lord in song amongst other ways of worship. Kids, I invite your pictures as well. If I'm talking to adults, just put your name on it, slip it in my hand, and I'll uh, get a hold of it, put them up in the front entrance, and one of you goes up here in the week. Well, we're back in Romans uh, 8 here after a little Christmas break, kind of the, this, this Airbnb, we called it, this, this great chapter that we're in. I want to start in verse 1 in our study If you don't remember, we're going to pick back up in verses 15 through 17, and I think it already fits, and by God's power and spirit, already fits with what we've been even thinking about already this morning. So I love that, how God works that out. So if you've got your Bibles, here we are, Romans 8, I'll start in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, 
not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Let's pray again. Lord, as we come to Your Word again, would Your Spirit help us in understanding the things of You? We don't know Your mind except the one who knows the mind of God by the Spirit. And so we pray as we think on this, these three verses really here and think on your, your Word and who You are and our, our relationship to You as children of God. Lord, may we leave here encouraged. May those here who are not sure, who are unsure of their status before You, of their identity, may they, may they come to You today to be children of God, come to Christ. Lord, guide us as we now study, Lord, that we would think well on this. Lord, may you apply it even into our own lives. Lord, we may be sitting by others. We, others may come to mind. But Lord, help us first to, to think on these things ourselves, to hear them for us, and that the overflow out of that might share with others as well. So guide our time according to your spirit, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a little review as we come back into this letter of Paul to the Romans, written sometime around A.D. 57. And so Paul's writing a letter here to kind of a mixed audience of Christians in Rome, Jews and Gentiles. And Rome, much like our day, much like our culture, much like our world, was really a very pagan city, a lot, a lot like what we see today, which I find interesting. So, this is not, we're not detached even from, from who this letter was written to, but we can also see it for our day. As we think back just briefly over the letter, Paul's already, he's already put forth, he's not, Romans 1.16, he's not ashamed of the powerful gospel of God in Jesus Christ. And then he's shown, from there he's shown, all, both Gentile and Jew, all are under sin, all are condemned to God's, his just judgment and to his wrath. And yet we find, even chapter 3, Christ Jesus is that wrath satisfier. He's the propitiation for our sin. And we receive Him, we're justified by faith. And so, it's our faith in Christ, not our faith in our works, our faith in Christ by which God justifies us. And that, that justification, think again, us being declared righteous, not because of our own righteousness, Christ's righteousness imputed that word to us. And so having been justified by faith, chapter 5, we have peace with God. And then there's grace upon grace through the better Adam, who is, who is of course, Jesus Christ. By the time we get to chapter 6, Paul's linking us to Christ, if, saying if we've died with Christ, then we're going to live with Him. And therefore, we must not let sin reign in our mortal bodies, for we are, and he uses that language, we're united 
to Christ. I've kind of subtitled our series in Romans, just over the whole series here with a phrase Paul uses really at bookends of the, the letter to the Romans, this, the obedience of faith. And so our faith in Christ, it not only justifies us, that's faith in Christ, it also works, we continue in obedient faith as we live as slaves of God, really. We present ourselves to Him. And yet, chapter 7, then, we look there. There's a battle that remains within. We've got the old flesh and then our our new life in Christ. So Paul helps us see there's a battle raging within. But then we come to Romans 8 here. So we get closer to our text. And that, that first phrase, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul's going to further say, we haven't got there yet, in verse 37, kind of a subtitle for even our chapter 8 here, that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Again, I think I've quoted Martin Lloyd-Jones this quote before as we, uh, maybe a couple sermons ago in Romans, I think in Romans 8 here, but he comments on chapter 6, 7, and 8 saying that, that, that our salvation in Christ is not partial. It is an entire, a complete salvation. What's he saying? It's not a partial salvation. It's complete. It's a, those who are justified are those who, as we see here in Romans 8, they're those who live by the Spirit of God who dwells within, who, who by the Spirit we put to death these deeds of the body. We talked about killing sin the last time we were in here. And so being led by the Spirit, verse 14, we are called sons of God. And so as we get to verses 15 through 17, this theme of sonship continues. Look again at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There's a contrast here between the spirit of adoption as sons, we'll look at that a bit, and then the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. What kind of fear does Paul have in mind here? Outside of Romans, I think 1 John 4 is helpful. There in 1 John 4, John writes, he says that God has given us of his spirit. And then he says in verses 16 through 18, this is 1 John 4, verses 16 through 18, he says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Because as he is, who's the he? Christ. As Christ is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out Fear. And here's where I find it you know, most helpful. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We're not under the spirit of slavery back into fear. And even closer, again, to reference Romans in chapter 6, Paul's used the, the slave imagery to contrast as being a, a slave to sin, a slave of sin, which leads to death. In chapter 8, we see those who are in the flesh, they're hostile, they can't please God. Paul writes, though, in the negative, he says, this is not the spirit you receive. You're you're not a slave to the 
As we saw in verse 2, the law of sin and death. You're free in Christ. So Leon Morris comments here. He says, Paul is saying that the leading of the Spirit delivers from fear and does not take us back to it again. In essence, you who are Christians, who are in Christ, you need not fear the wrath or the punishment that is due us for our sin. It has been taken care of. You need not fear the master you were once under. If you have died with Christ, you live with Christ. You need not fear being in Christ. And so fellow heirs with Christ, to use the language from verse 17, fellow heirs with Christ need not fear the law of sin and death. But there's a contrast here. The, the spirit of slavery unto fear. But then the other contrast is this, this, the spirit of adoption as sons. Not all of your translations maybe will capitalize, but I think the ESV is right here to capitalize spirit. I think Paul has in mind the Holy Spirit. He's received the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This phrase, the phrase here, adoption as sons, it's really just one word in the original language here. It's kind of a combination of a word. It means, in one, one part of it, means to put or place in a particular location, assigned to some task, establish or change in experience or condition. And then the other part of it is just the word for son or offspring or descendant or sonship. And so again, Leon Morris, he writes on this word, he says it signifies being granted the full rights and privileges of sonship in a family to which one does not belong by nature. That is, we are not all born children of God. We are adopted in as His children. Another place, parallel passage, you can just write this down, Galatians 4, 5-7, through 7, sounds a l- very similar. And just coming out of Christmas, we saw this, I think we looked at this as well, where Paul says there, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to, what, Why? to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then it says in verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. John Murray writes this of the Spirit being called here, this Spirit of adoption. And he says this, he says, the Spirit is called the Spirit of Adoption, quote, not because He is the agent of adoption, but because it is He who creates in the children of God the filial love and confidence by which they are able to cry, Abba, Father, and exercise the rights and privileges of God's children. And so in verse 15, at the end here, there's really this reality. We are adopted as sons those in Christ, and then the reality of the experience is this crying out, Abba, Father. We want to think on this a little bit more and really this phrase, Abba, Father. Perhaps you have heard some preachers or maybe others would point to this phrase that we can address God, this, this Abba, meaning we can address Him as 
as daddy. It, and I think there's some truth to the idea behind this, but I just want to offer a caution as well. Just hear me out in case you, boy, I just, I love it when I hear he's my daddy and think of him that way. There's truth, but a, a caution here. The, the word Abba, as you see it there, it's, it's really an Aramaic word, another language really, I think the, the language Jesus spoke, but it's the Aramaic word for father. And so you've got Abba being Aramaic, and then the next father is really the Greek translation of the Aramaic. So it's, in some ways, it's father, father. But it's true, kids would seem to have addressed their fathers as Abba. And, and even you think of Avraham or Abraham, Av is kind of the Hebrew way of saying uh, father, Abraham, father of, of a multitude. So you've got that Av, you can see it there. The, the B is really probably a, a V sound in the Hebrew. So Ava, think of that, father. So it's true, kids would address their fathers as Abba. But also, as I look this up, adults also address their fathers as Abba. So it's not just childhood language. My, my caution with, with the language of daddy, before we get to kind of meaning here, would, would only be that of uh, writer Murray Harris. He says this of the term daddy. He says it, it's too casual and flippant and unassuming to be used in addressing the Lord God Almighty, the creator and sustainer of all things. So the, the caution there is just on a, just only thinking of God as daddy. But that, that being said, this is not simply just a cold address to a father. You know, just, oh, thanks, Mike. You just ripped all that out. Uh, it's not just a cold address. Leon Morris, again, he says the word, it certainly points to love and to intimacy. John MacArthur seems to be in favor even of daddy or, or papa. Maybe some, some of you, that's familiar. And he says this, he says it connotes tenderness, dependence, and a relationship free of fear or anxiety. So I'm not ready to throw out the implications of what it means to be a child of God, to see God as our Father. I'm just, just a little caution with, with the terms there. Now secondly, it may get lost in here as we're thinking just on Abba, Father, but it is by the spirit of adoption that we, you see it there? By whom we cry out. We cry out, Abba, Father. And Doug Moo, commentator of views before, he writes this. He says, Paul stresses that our awareness of God as Father comes not from rational consideration nor from external testimony alone, but from a truth deeply felt and intensely experienced. He makes this observation. He says, if some Christians err in basing their assurance of salvation on feelings alone, and we can err there, can't we? He says, many others err in basing it on facts and arguments alone. Indeed, what Paul says here calls into question whether one can have a genuine experience of God's spirit of adoption without its affecting the emotions. When I bring that up, there's just there's caution with that. We can just base everything on feelings, but there are affections that come with this. And so the Spirit applies this work of Christ to our hearts, and so by the Spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. Not only a mental exercise, yeah, Father, Dad, okay. Heart, truth in the heart exercise, so that fellow heirs 
with Christ. We cry out to the Father. And it is this experience that we see as we head into verse 16. Now look at verse 16. It says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So here we've got this co, kind of co-testimony. There's God's Spirit testifying to our own spirit, but the question is, well, how does this work exactly? How does the Spirit bear witness with our spirit? Is this kind of some, like a subjective operation with just our emotions and our feelings? And it's here we're, we're getting into the realm of experiential theology. I don't want to scare you off with that term. This, this is not experiential theology apart from God's truth. It's experience it based on God's truth. But it's simply acknowledging that God has given us a conscience. And there's an inner witness. And also that His Spirit, Galatians 4 would say this, has been sent into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. I want to go back to the Puritans. J.I. Packer, I referenced him during Christmas time. He wrote a book, another book. I have not read the whole thing, but I, I thought of it when it came. I thought about the Puritans are kind of known for, I think, experiential theology. They're, if you're not familiar with them, the, I'm trying to summarize devout Christians, really in England, also in America, 1550s, 1700s, somewhere that period. Uh, um, John Owen would be, I think, one. Others, Richard Sibbs. Um, if I'm even getting that name right, there's others, Puritans. But there's a book he's written on the godliness of this, these Puritans, devote to the gospel, to the truths of Scripture, and to living out those truths. And there's a section, there's a reference he references in this book on Romans 8.16, where we're at. And, this, and then the, the Puritan view of, of faith. And I've kind of put together a few places here, but he says, in part, speaking of the Puritan view of faith, that, quote, faith begins in the mind with belief of the truth of the gospel message. Then he goes on to say, faith is, of course, more than mental enlightenment. It extends from head to the heart and expresses itself in what Baxter calls a practical trust in God through Christ. Verse 16, we see the work of God's Spirit in our own spirit And an aspect of this inner witness is that aspect of assurance. The assurance that you are a child of God. And I think what Packer is trying to get at here and bringing out the Puritans is this inward witness of the Spirit with our spirit that's both present at conversion. It's it's there when we initially come to Christ, but it deepens as we grow in the assurance of salvation through the maturing of our faith and the testing of our faith. We just sang this morning, and I think we sang it at prayer meeting this week, um, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him, or and or, over and over to translate the or and not or. Or, over and over, you've learned to trust. I think there's that idea here of this testing and growing. It, in the midst of suffering or hardship, and this testing of the faith that on the outside, on the coming out of the suffering, you still trust in God. Your faith is still there. There's this growing assurance, I am a child of God. Because there was a point where I could have turned the other way, and I kept seeking the Lord. I kept 
praying, or you could say it rightly, God kept me in himself. This inner witness, this growing over time, growing as we mature in Christ. And so our conscience and the Holy Spirit testify within that indeed we are the children of God. That's not the only testimony. We've got all of Scripture, God's Word, bank on Christ and what He has said. But I think Paul's looking at this, this inner witness as well. Hopefully that, that makes sense again. It seems to the Puritan that they would look at this, this inward testimony of the Spirit. Again, active in a way at our conversion, deepening in time and maturity. And really, I think, I think it's going back to even what I mentioned last week in these ordinary means of grace that God has given us to do. You say, I'm struggling with my assurance. I don't know if I'm a child of God. I'm really, I'm not sure. I don't think the, the thing here is to wait and say, I'll just, I'll just wait. I think I feel it. I, wait, no, that might have been lunch. You know, that kind of idea. It's to do the things He's already called you. Come to His Word. Cry out to Him. Lord, I need you. Be around and fellowship with His believers. Sing songs of praise together. And that assurance grows. God's given those ordinary means by which the Spirit uses even within us to grow those affections and, I think at the same time, our assurance. That's helpful. I think. And maybe you can look up the Puritans, look up more on that idea. So fellow heirs with Christ experience the assurance of the Spirit. And then in verse 17, Paul draws out the implications of sonship. Look at verse 17. And if children, if you're children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. My question here, as we look at verse 17, is what does this mean? What, what does it mean to be an heir of God, to be a fellow heir with Christ? What, what truly is our inheritance? What is it that we possess? Now, to some, they're going to look at the inheritance Think with eyes towards eternity, but really centering on the riches of this world alone. I'm thinking here of someone named Gloria Copeland, the wife of Kenneth Copeland. If you've been watching it all, American Gospel, it's, it's in a lot of places at our church these days, and I'm so thankful. But Gloria Copeland, wife of Kenneth Copeland, she said this, speaking on prosperity and in our inheritance at Christ, in Christ. She said this, don't be mad at me because I'm wealthy. I inherited it. There's this aim towards wealth. That, that's what this is. Or elsewhere, she says, we ain't poor no more. We are heirs. One book even she's written, title of the book, God's Will is Prosperity. It's the health, it's the wealth, gospel, name it. You've got to claim that. You are inheritance. Claim that rich, those riches. It's the prosperity gospel. And they would look at this text. In fact, you can go back. You can look up a podcast. I did. I was looking just for a sermon on heirs of God, and theirs popped up. I think I wasn't just looking for them, but 
And if you enjoy it, I don't think you'd enjoy it, but you can listen to it and hear it for yourself. They would look at texts like this and go, see, here is our wealth. Here it's come. It's coming to me now. I once was poor, but not anymore. I'm, I'm rich. Thinking in wealth terms alone. Look what's coming to me. Contrast that with Doug Moo and how he comments here. He says, he says, Paul might mean that believers inherit what God has promised. And I think there's something to that. the promise of God. We, we inherit those promises. He says, but it's perhaps more likely that he means that we inherit God himself. Look at the language there. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. That's the inheritance. John Murray says it's difficult to suppress the richer and deeper thought that God himself is the inheritance of his children. It's so much beyond these trinkets that the Copelands and others would say, look at this inheritance. It's, it's getting a private jet, and my needs are taken care of, and I am healthy. And you've lost the picture of who you get in the gospel of God. A couple of Old Testament passages that just lay this out. I'll read them to you. We're not going there. You can write these down. Psalm 73, verses 25 through 26. The psalmist asks, Whom have I in heaven but you? Not looking at jets, not looking at the gold I'm going to get. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 16, verse 2 says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Or verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Private jets, big properties, all this. No, verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. There's affections. My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. I think we can see this in Christ, the fulfillment, but for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so I quote from John Piper in that book we studied. I think it comes God is the gospel. He says this. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. Verse 17, as we look at the tail end of verse 17, just takes the legs out of this prosperity gospel. Do you see the end of that verse? Provided we suffer. And I thought inheritance was just having all my health and everything I need, just claiming it, I am rich, that idea. 
provided we suffer. It's in the same sentence, in the same verse, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Fellow heirs with Christ suffer with Christ on their way to be glorified in Christ. Jesus says this to his disciples in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And he goes on to say, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul elsewhere, Philippians 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffering is part of being an heir of God. Suffering that grows us towards our God. I want to head to one last passage, and I would like you to turn there to Mark chapter 14. It doesn't seem like there's not a month or two that goes by without this this section coming up. Maybe it's longer, but Mark chapter 14, in particular verse 36. If you would just look there as we're about to close. Here we're in Gethsemane. Jesus is there in this garden knowing this night of betrayal is at hand. And he's here in this garden of Gethsemane. He's here to pray. And on his very lips are the same words that Paul has used in our passage. And I think there's a connection to what Paul would later write and what Jesus prayed here. Look at Mark chapter 14, verse 36. And so, so Jesus goes a little further and he prays. He's praying, if it's possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, here it is. Do you see it? Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus cries out to his Father. Jesus is not on his way to riches, is he? He's on his way to the cross. And Christ is yet proclaiming, take this cup, but it's not what I will. It's I want your will to be done. Probably really the fulfillment of whom have I in heaven, Christ. And yet God would, after the cross and in the resurrection and his ascension, he would exalt him. And Jesus now does sit at the right hand of God. So inheritance and glory even come through the route of suffering. And we're going to look on this theme of suffering even as we continue into chapter 8 as well next week. Just a few thoughts then as we close to kind of recap where we've been. Fellow heirs with Christ, do not fear the law of sin and death. Are you in the fear of sin today? Perhaps it's because you've never come to Christ for forgiveness. Not all, as I said, not all are heirs. Not all are, we're all children. It's not true. Not all are children of God. Those that repent and believe, again, that work of the Spirit, but work of you, repenting, believing on Jesus Christ, are saved and therefore children of God. And if you be in Christ, then you need not fear. Look to Christ. Secondly, fellow heirs with Christ cry out to the Father with confidence as His child. Whether it's times of suffering or it's times of peace, we can cry out to our Father whose mercies are new every morning. 
Three, fellow heirs with Christ, experience the assurance of the Spirit. Are you enjoying that assurance? If not, again, come back to the ordinary things. Walk with God in obedience. Obey Him. Seek His face and His Word in prayer together where there's opportunities to be in fellowship. Seek the Lord. Experience that assurance of the Spirit. And then, and then fellow heirs suffer on the way to final glorification. Whether we live in times of plenty or poverty, whether we are sick and we get more sick, people around us get sick, or we've got great health, may our portion be the Lord. To, to say with Christ, not my will, but yours. Whatever you have. And that our longing for God, it's not the longing of, of even trinkets, of just material wealth or good health or the absence of suffering. But that through even those things, that our longing becomes more and more for God Himself, for joy, wherein Him is pleasure forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we're often taken off track and we, we, we see it that this, this ministry, if it's called that at all, of the Copelands is to, is to preach a gospel that just gives good things. And there's no suffering. You've got to have enough faith. Yet, Lord, we see clearly in your scripture, sufferings comes right alongside being an heir of Christ, a fellow heir. Lord, may we embrace those times of trial and testing and suffering, of poverty, of sickness, that in them, Lord, you are doing a work to draw us again to yourself, that we see you more clearly like Job who says, I have heard of you, and now my eyes see you. And the testimony of those that have gone through suffering and say, I wouldn't trade it because of where it brought me to know my God. Lord, may we look towards that in our suffering. May we look with the assurance of children. May you give us the discipline it is even to read your word, to pray, to be in fellowship, and the other things, the, the ordinary things that this inner testimony may grow and that we would walk with you. Lord, I pray that you would do this within us and I thank you for the promise we have in Christ. Those who are in Christ are children of God. We can cry out to you any time of the day. We can cry out, Abba, Father, the example of Christ in the garden and for us as believers in him. May we be encouraged in this, we pray in your name. Amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.